Hi, I'm Julianne Rollins-Richon, and welcome to Drinking and Joshing, Torah with a Twist, or in this case, with a swirl. As many of our listeners know, stories are wonderful, rich, and complex, and very rarely simple. The same applies to all people, and as our podcast shows, definitely to all Jews. It's possible that some of the things you'll hear will challenge past assumptions, and some of the ideas shared may encourage reflection on what inclusion really means. Understanding that our episode this week deals with speaking truth to power and juggling multiple priorities, we're thrilled to bring in Julianne Rollins-Richon and Becky J to share their Torah. We're so excited to be starting, believe it or not, our 12th episode, an even dozen, if you will. And I could not be more thrilled to have our guest this week be a friend of mine from way back when, Julianne Rollins Richon. Julianne Rollins Richon is a biracial Ashkenazi and Black American Rebbitzin entrepreneur, speaker, and writer. As the granddaughter of German Holocaust survivors and Southern Black Americans, Julianne uses her own identity to encourage others to explore the relationship with race, religion, and culture. She is the founder of Hyphenation, a consulting firm for empowering people of all backgrounds to enter into racial dialogue with confidence and grace. It is also my pleasure to welcome fourth-year rabbinical student, Becky J onto the show. Welcome, Julianne. Welcome, Becky. We're so excited to have you here with us. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. Ditto. I'm super stoked. And as always, it is my honor and privilege to introduce my co-host, Gabe Snyder. Hello. And a show wouldn't be complete, or let's face it, even exist, without our creative editor and producer, Edan Waldman. What's up, Edan? Not much. How you doing? Excited to be here, excited to come into this new Torah portion. Gabe, as we're coming into this new portion, Bo, let's be real. Last week we had seven plagues. We had God in a burning bush. Is there really anything super interesting about this week's portion? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. This week, we have Parashat Bo, which starts with God saying to Moses, go to Pharaoh, but also come to Pharaoh. Hebrew is hard. Why does God send Moses? Legitimately to mock Pharaoh and the Egyptians for generations. And next up, locusts. Locusts who are going to wreck the rest of the land that the hail didn't destroy last week. Gross. So Pharaoh's entourage are over this. Let them worship their own God already. Pharaoh says, fine, go worship. Who's going? And Moses says, Well, everybody, you know, the young, the old, the men, the women. What? Egalitarianism? No way, says Pharaoh. Obviously, you're up to some sort of shenanigans. Only the men get to go. Now get out. God, not quite satisfied, is like, okay, guess we're bringing locusts then. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, hey, my bad, please make it stop. God takes care of it, but then also hardens Pharaoh's heart. So the Israelites still aren't let go again. So God's like, hey, if Pharaoh refuses to see the light, then let's bring the darkness. And so, bam, there's a blackout in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gives up again and brings Moses to him and is like, hey, go worship God and all the people can go with you, 
But the animals, they've got to stay. And Moses pushes back. Uh, the Egyptians are going to have to provide some of the sacrifices then. And also, we've got to bring our own animals too. God stops Pharaoh from saying yes and is like, get out. The next time you see me, you're going to die. And so Moses is like, whatever you say, bro, I won't see you again. Last plague, and it's a biggie, but the Israelites have to prep. God has them borrow gold and silver from the Egyptians, and Moses is doing pretty well in the polls for both the Egyptians and the Israelites. Midnight's coming, and every firstborn in Egypt is going to die. Nisan is marked at the beginning of the calendar, and on the 10th of the month, everyone is expected to pick a lamb to be sacrificed on the 14th day of the month, and they should put the blood on the doorposts of their house, eat the part of the lamb that's allowed, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Sound familiar? Any house with blood on the doorposts, God would pass over. The Torah also has a love for puns. And we're told how to celebrate Passover for the entire future, including seven days of matzah, no work, a seder, and a whole bunch of digestive issues. God does strike down the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn son, and Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron, so much for not seeing him again, and tells them to worship and get out. The Israelites said, don't gotta tell us twice, and departed with silver, gold, clothes, animals, and of course, the unleavened bread. Thus ended 430 years in Egypt and the start of a promise to redeem the firstborn Jewish baby, usually male, in every family. A quick shout out to reminders on our hands and forehead so that we always remember the exodus from Egypt. And that's where we leave you as we come to the close of Bo. That was incredible. <laughs> Did you write that? You wrote that? That one Amanda writes. I usually write them. I love it. Amanda, I hear you in it too. So I was like, wait, are you guys really <laughs> that much alike? That was my first reaction. <laughs> and it's amazing. Julianne, thank you so much for being with us. Before we jump in to the rest of the episode, just to clarify, what is a Rebbitzin? So I think there are a couple of different answers to that question. A Rebbitzin is generally referring to a rabbi's wife, usually one who is present communally um, and is somebody that community members feel like they can come to and talk to and ask questions of. It's generally used in orthodoxy. It probably can be used across all the streams, but I think it isn't in part because of the egalitarian nature of the other streams, but also because a Robinson really sort of holds a special place where they're definitely not the rabbi. They're not trying to be the or a rabbi, but they are the person who is sort of the side note that everyone can come to a little bit more under the table almost. Another definition of it is a woman, again, usually in orthodoxy, who has risen to a place of communal acknowledgement in her understanding of halacha and her parsing out of halacha, where people will then come and ask her questions, whether or not she's married to a rabbi, um, where she gives talks and speeches and is, is holds this place of, of responsibility and of teaching that is very women-centered, generally. Uh, it centers on things like Tahar Hamishpacha or family purity. Um, she'll center on what a feminist perspective really is within Judaism from a more traditional view, a more orthodox view, really, of halacha and how, as women, we're really like a big focus in Judaism, even if it's a much more understated one. And the reason that I say that what I do <laughs> as a Robinson may not fit 
all of that explanation is, I mean, I am married to a rabbi, so I think I married into the definition more than anything else, especially because whether or not I consider myself orthodox is up for debate. Um, probably more orthoprax. And uh, somebody actually who I was in nifty with coined this term, refroom. So sort of like not orthodox because I don't really believe in some of the tenets of what makes orthodoxy orthodoxy. Um, but but definitely just somewhere in there, I, like I guess just Jewish. And I, I feel like to be that kind of Robinson, you kind of have to be actually orthodox. Um, but I do think that I do my best to learn and to be somebody that women in my community and outside of it can come to and talk to about women's issues and other things that clergy or clergy adjacent would be approached with. Amazing. And I know that you've taken some of that educational work and passion for teaching others and have brought that into your firm of hyphenation. So can you tell us a little bit about what hyphenation does? So the very short version is that it's the practice space for navigating race. The slightly longer version is that we have reached a a place as a nation where everyone's feelings are really caught up in how we have any conversations about race and identity. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that nobody's really sure where and when they get to actually speak up, what's considered politically correct, where they fit in the conversation, especially if they are somebody who is white presenting or white and more liberal, like where does my voice get to be heard and where am I completely messing up? And I have these conversations a lot where people are worried about being offensive and they forget or don't know that the issue is less about being offensive than it is about making sure that you intend respect and being able to own it when that's not how it came across without feeling like their entire identity as somebody who actually cares about these things and does not want to hurt people is being crumbled. Like, it's so wrapped up in who you are and how you see yourself that it makes the conversations way harder because they're happening on a lot of different emotional levels and people don't acknowledge that. So I've created a space to be able to practice what to say, how to say it, how to take your foot out of your mouth with grace, because it's pretty much inevitable that you're going to stick your foot in your mouth no matter who you are and what your social identity is. So that's the point of hyphenation. Could you talk to us about what kind of values you have that drive that work? What what brings you to that mission? So we could be here literally all day and I could talk about that. I'm going to try not to do that. Feel free to cut me off at whatever point necessary or redirect. Um, honestly, a lot of it's Jewish values. And, and then also how that was taught to me and implemented in the town I grew up in. Um, because between Nifty and Girl Scouts and being in a town where like nobody was a wasp, pretty much everybody white was either Jewish or Catholic. Um, and there was a very small population percentage-wise that was non-white, but we lived near other areas that were. Everybody Jewish was either a reform or conservative, but we lived near a town that is very orthodox. Um, and so all of that together sort of breeded this white saviorism into our version of tikkun olam and general social justice. And I adopted that because how would I know any better? And then I grew up and my 
Mother was not always with me, so people saw my face, which is brown, and had no idea why I was coming from the perspective that I was. And I learned a lot the hard way about how to not talk about these things and how to help people help themselves rather than just help people. Um, And I apply that, I think, in every direction. I, I like to apply that also to the people who don't who think that they're supposed to always be the ones helping, um, which in a lot of spaces is the people who grew up around me. And in Jewish spaces often is, you know, the middle to upper middle class, progressive, white presenting Jews who struggle with whether or not they are actually white um, and when it's appropriate to unclaim it and when it's appropriate to claim it. Because a lot of us who were raised with that version of Tikkun Olam, like, don't know we're supposed to be able to help ourselves with that and have no idea how. And so having the values of like, this is our our job with the privileges that we were given and the identities that we have to go out into the world and make it a better place. That's what I wanna do, but I wanna make it so that I'm not the only one doing it. I'm enabling other people to do it in the way that, that also centers who they are and where they come from and what is actually their responsibility to help make the world a better place. So, Julianne, I know when when you and I spoke about you coming on that I was I was doing laps in a parking lot as I was walking my puppy and we were talking and you asked me to share this story on the episode, which was I found myself in a really unique situation that I didn't realize that Jews of color was like a, a, a thing out of the norm. Right. Like I didn't realize that that was something that people would see because I grew up with you, you know, I, I, I've known you for, for a very long time. I, I grew up with Jews of color in my synagogue in Spring Valley, New York. Um, and I know that you're in New City, New York. Um, and so it was such a, an interesting moment to be like, wait, like, why is this? Why is this something that people get behind? Why is this something different? I, I don't understand. And you had said that, A, it was good that I had I'd grown up that way. And that, you know, for me, like, that was part of our story. That was part of my story. Um, but that for people who that's not a part of their story, for people that, you know, are the people that might become uncomfortable or unaware that this is a, a person who truly belongs in their community, but doesn't necessarily look like they expect them to, that this was a really important episode for people to tune into and to hear and to share this Torah and share this story. And so first, I want to say thank you for coming on as my friend um, and my friend for a very long time. But also, what do we say to those people who aren't sure what the right thing to say is, right? Like, aren't sure how to be warm and welcoming and what inclusion really can look like when it's done right? It's such a good question, Amanda. And I think that oftentimes people are so anxious to prove that they are inclusive and welcoming in a specific way to a specific person because of what they see about them as different, that they forget that like the person is there because of something that's the same. For the love of God, if one more person when I walk into a shul asks me why I'm there, it might not be a very godly moment. (laughs) Um, The amount of like oppression Olympics that gets played, the amount of like authenticity proving and Jewish geography that has to be played in these moments is so exhausting. And I am 
so thankful that my mom taught me to just be entitled to my Judaism. There are a lot of other moments in the work that I do that I have to unravel the level of entitlement that I was taught to have about who I am and where I belong. But this is one that I feel like it really definitely helps me because I'm like, I know I belong here. In every definition of the word, there's nothing about me that anyone can say I don't belong. And as a Jew of color, I'm not the only one, but I'm not, like, that's not necessarily the across the board story. So it it's it's been a lot of work even on my part to figure out the answer to that. And let's be clear, every Jew of color I've ever spoken with has the same questions you do when they see another Jew of color in their Jewish community and wants to ask the same ones that you do. But we all know how it feels empathetically to have that happen. So like we temper our curiosity by just having a conversation. Guess what? Jews love to have conversations and Jews love to talk about themselves. Some people are more private than others, but you don't have to ask the question. Their story is going to come out. Like, we are a people of storytellers. Just say hello. Say Shabbat Shalom. Say, welcome, I've never seen you before. Not, hey, are you new here? Because my husband shares a story actually with me about how he hadn't been back to the synagogue that he had grown up in for like a year and a half. And somebody new had come in that time. But like, literally, this was the place he'd been going to for over 10 years. And they came up to him to welcome him and were like, hi, you must be new here. I'm whatever. What brings you here? And the amount of deeply offended that he was, because like, this is his place. This is his shul. You're new here. Don't welcome me. I don't want to be welcomed. I want to be said hello to or left alone because I'm here to daven, to talk to God, not you. But say hi. Like, don't ask me 5 million questions. Stop gatekeeping. Stop And for those of you who don't know what gatekeeping means, like, stop acting like you're standing guard at the door and you're the person who allows the gate of entry to open. You're not. It's bad enough when security does that during the high holidays and we're just trying to actually go and, you know, we've been fasting and don't really want to be uncranky with people, but have to be for our safety. But we don't want that from other members, too. So literally just have a conversation like you were having a conversation with anybody else, which also means sometimes it's going to be awkward because let's not pretend like you're not awkward with other newcomers or with other people when you're the newcomer. That's going to happen sometimes. But just say hello. Say, how are you? Say, I've never seen you here before. Say, I haven't been here in a while and I'm seeing a new face. Or like, hey, have you been going here a while? Assume that the person does belong. Because honestly, even if they don't, even if they are brand new, everyone always feels better when you assume that they did belong and they get to explain how they're new and it's a cool story. So speaking of stories, I know, and I know that like I just shared my own, I know that you were one of our earliest calls in terms of getting guests for the podcast and you took your time to make sure that the story that you picked was the story that you wanted And so I'm curious how you see Bo applying to the work that you do and how you translate that Torah into real life tactics, how that works for you. Okay, so to be honest, I looked at Bo again last night and was like, why did I pick this Parsha? I could not remember. But then I, I don't know if I came back up with my original reasons, but there are so many reasons to pick it. And I think that that was really why. For one, it doesn't matter how many times people hear a Jew of color 
say, just talk to us like we're people, somehow your hearts get hardened. And even when you've run into the wall and your face has gotten hurt by that, or you see that you've hurt somebody who later may have become your friend, like if this is something that you're not used to, you kind of do become a little bit like Pharaoh and your heart gets hardened and you've got to be told the same thing over and over again and there have to be consequences. And usually it's like for the synagogue because now maybe that person decides not to become a member or for the community because it's seen as a little bit less friendly and less racially progressive than you were hoping that your community would be seen as. And these are minor plagues for the community as a whole, but they're really big plagues for Jews of color. And for people of color who aren't Jewish, whether they're considering it or not, or whether they're spouses of people in your community or not, because you're making people feel really unwelcome and like their identity is a problem. And that's a really big plague. Um, It leads to a lot of people who were maybe very communally involved either growing up or like in the choices that they've made and um, through their conversion, if they converted, deciding to completely just back out of Jewish life um, to going off the derech if they were, you know, more orthodox, to leaving entirely. I have a friend who is Jamaican-born, was adopted when he was like two by a white Jewish couple, was given a conservative conversion, reconfirmed himself with his bar mitzvah, went to day school, the whole nine, and, and kept kosher, which was more than I could say for growing up. And we became friends in college, And us finding each other was a great moment. The amount of stress of moving back to New York City and having all the Chabad people completely ignore him when he actually did want to bench Lulav or rap with Tefillin because, you know, for whatever reason, he didn't have his own or hadn't done it that morning. And just being, like, discounted. I've heard the K word come out of his mouth a couple times. And, you know, he he, he doesn't have any connection with the Jewish community anymore. And he was so involved for so long. Um, I, you know, I have another friend who, or former friend, I guess, at this point, because she's really just blocked everything Jewish out of her life, who is Haitian and grew up, I guess, in a a area with a big, young, uh, modern Orthodox population and got really involved in NCSY. Finally, began her conversion in her early 20s, finished after a few years, ended up getting married to somebody else who was also Black and had had an Orthodox conversion. And the way that that was published in their local Jewish newspaper was disgusting and very, like, fishbowl-y and tokenizing. And the way that the community ended up continually reacting to her made her so disgusted with everything that she ended up converting to Islam and just being like, I can't, I can't deal with this. And she had been gung-ho for so long on, like, Judaism was her soul. It was her light. And, and that, that's gone because of the way that the community treated her. So I feel like these plagues really have happened so much to Jews of color and to members um, of the extended community that that was one big reason. I think another one for me was really, like, I I just see this very strong parallel with darkness and the plague of whiteness, because when everything gets whitewashed and you have to, you have to gatekeep to have a certain type of identity, you get 
similar to the Egyptians, you get stuck and you can't move and you can't see the way that you would like to be able to see even when your eyes start to adjust. And you have to sort of undergo this this like attempt to to spiritually search through yourself to have yourself be let go and to maybe like let other people go and define things their own way the same way that the Jews had to be let go to find our own way of living and practicing in order to be able to move again. And this whole conundrum that most American Ashkenazi Jews have with how adjacent we are to whiteness really becomes a very similar structure where like you just can't move. You can't grow in what it what your identity is as a Jew when part of your definition of that, and I'm super guilty of this too. Like I claimed my Judaism in high school because it was the way that people stopped asking me to choose whether I was black or white and to choose between my parents. And even though I knew about Ethiopian Jewry and I don't think I knew yet about Kaifeng Jews, but like there were there were other people that I knew of who were also Jews of color. I, I totally invalidated a high school friend of mine who was Iranian and Jewish. And I was like, you can't be because you're not white. Like there's no whiteness in your family. I don't get it. It I understood a little bit about Sephardi Jews because I had a friend who was Mexican and Jewish, but that also confused me at that age. Like I get it empathetically, um, but it took really ripping that away for me and the fact that I am half black and therefore I didn't have a choice about it being ripped away to be able to get unstuck from that equation of whiteness and Jewishness and to be able to like not have it be a plague on me. And I think that that as American Jews, we go through that really strongly. So those are, I think, the two biggest things. There's a little bit about the Arab Rav also and people who are not the same culture, initially seeing the value in your culture and way of practicing and joining that I think is also really important in the work that I do. But if I keep going now, we're going to be here literally all day. So I'll let you guys use your imagination as to what that is. It, it relates more to last week's Torah portion of Vayera. Um, actually, not even Vayera. It relates more to Shmot. So we're going back a couple of weeks now in my head. But we know that Moses had a confusing mix of identities to use your words of like things are confusing where Moses was born to an Israelite woman and then was raised by Egyptians but was also nursed by an Israelite and then ran away and started a family with some Midianites and it's a very confusing kind of roundabout way of getting to things and I and so I I want to just pause it for a minute that confusing identity sometimes actually makes things a lot richer. It certainly richens the story, but it also gives Moses a lot of the perspective and a lot of the connections that he needs down the line. So I I wanted to just mark that. The other thing I wanted to say is that I, I so appreciate the way you're talking about identity at this moment. I I think that one of the biggest goals of this podcast overall is that any listener at any time should be able to tune in and on some episode hear somebody with whom they can relate. And I 
appreciate that you're telling your story not only from a place of this is who I am, but from a place of real humility of, and here are the ways in which I've messed up, or even, and here are the biases that I have held in my life, and here's how I'm working to move past them. So I am curious if you had an opportunity to talk to those listeners directly, because you do, we're giving you the, this platform, I'm wondering what your message is that you want to get out there with the understanding that our listeners may very much relate to you and may very much not. Ooh, that's a tall order. Um, one that that I tend to take on, I guess, on a fairly regular basis, but usually I get to see the people that I'm talking to. Uh, although progressively, that's less and less true, especially as we live in a world of Zoom now. But for one, you're going to get it wrong. That's okay. Like, we we have this process of teshuva, and it doesn't only exist on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but we get to wipe the slate kind of clean. However, one thing that I keep relearning every year, and my husband, who in a lot of ways is one of my greatest teachers, likes to talk about the way that we do teshuva as this spiral where we sort of come to the same exact thing time after time, but we have a different understanding of what we did wrong and why it was wrong and how we can do better and whether or not we can fix it and who we need to apologize to and what for. And I, I really hate and like that because the guilt is super fun. Um, but just because we're people who's really good at feeling guilt doesn't mean that we can't use that as a motivator to do better without feeling shame. Like, you're going to get it wrong. That's totally okay. We don't We don't have this whole, like, do, you know, 10 Hail Marys and it's all absolved. And we have this concept of Ben Adam where, like, things between humans are between humans. That's who we need to have the conversation with. That's who we need to make it right with. And we may spend all of our lives doing that. And sometimes that's exhausting and we just need to, like, live and be an individual and take care of ourselves. But that is also a really important part of who we are as individuals and as a people that in order to be your best self, you have to actually also take care of who you are. And in doing that, it's really important to figure out what your identity is. That's a really hard thing to do. And in, you know, in this vein of sort of like confusing identity and why it's richer, it's not so much that it's richer as that those of us with identities that confuse other people and therefore sometimes ourselves because they're sociologically confusing, we have to do this work a lot earlier. And things tend to be richer when they have sort of slow cooked and when we've had to do it for longer. And when you keep coming up against like these these boundaries of who you are and what your identity is, is not allowed and you have to explain yourself, you start learning how to explain who you are to yourself and to other people very young. And I think that most people with a more stereotypical identity don't have to do that. So... Like, for example, as far as race and even to an extent religion, because my dad was Catholic, I had to figure out what I was and what I wasn't and define myself by both of those things a lot younger than most people. But that doesn't mean that there weren't areas where it was sort of a vacuum. Like, I didn't start becoming more observant and really learning anything about what it meant to me to be Jewish until college, because like I said, New City is very Jewish. I had, you know, I have a friend who's 
first-generation American. His parents are from Africa. He's Episcopalian. And he probably grew up going to more Passover seders than most people who are Jewish that don't live in the greater New York area. Um, And he was confused freshman year of college going to Cornell when he couldn't find a seder to go to. Like, that's just how much in the fabric of where we grew up being Jewish was. And I never had to define what that actually meant to me. And then I went to Boston College, which is a Jesuit Catholic university, where my screen name, I'm dating myself, this was AIM, my screen name was BC's Black Jew. So it says in my screen name that I'm Jewish, right? But I would get IMs from people being like, you're obviously very spiritual and connected to God. Why do I never see you in church on Sunday? And mind you, there were three churches on campus, never mind the ones close by. Um, But they were like, isn't God good enough for a day for you? And I was like, yes, it's called Shabbat. And it happened Sunday on Friday to Sunday on Saturday. And it's not like I was ever remotely fully Shabbat observant in college. But I started seeking out Hillel. And thankfully, the area BC is in has two very Jewish areas, Newton, which is a lot like New City, and Brookline, aka Brookline, which is a, a lot more like Muncie, but not totally, thankfully. So I started going to more services and Also, BC has a very robust Judaic studies program. So I started actually taking classes. And I never went to Hebrew school. I learned most of it through my younger sister who did go to Hebrew school. And then, like, I started to learn. And the more I started to learn, the more I started to do. But I finally had to define what being Jewish meant to me personally because I wasn't in a situation where there was just this obvious communal identification with it and identity of it and, like, where I just never had to decide. And I think that that's something that people really need to try to recognize and come to terms with, that like when it's easy for you and you don't have to decide what it means to be you, then anything that looks like something different than your definition, you're automatically going to reject. And that's normal and natural and human. And that's a lot of why Jews of color walking into a synagogue often have an issue because all of a sudden, like people are like, I'm not white. Jews are not white. And then you see somebody who is not phenotypically white looking and you go, wait a minute, you don't belong here. Well, wait, what does that mean if I'm not white, but now I'm having a problem because they're not? And there's just this very visceral reaction. And it's really all of that happening. So when people actually like can sit back and look at what they think of what it means to be the identifying factors of who they are, then they can keep moving forward. One of the benefits to being a student at HUCJR is that we are surrounded by brilliant people, and it is a complete honor and privilege to bring on one of those brilliant humans that I am lucky enough to know and Gabe is lucky enough to know. Becky J is a fourth-year rabbinical student at HUCJR New York with Gabe and with me, and a rabbinic intern at Temple Emmanuel in Westfield, New Jersey. She loves studying Torah and spending time with her incredible family and friends. She is currently living in Valladolid, Spain, with her husband, Miguel. Becky, what a pleasure to have you on. I'm passing the mic to you, and man, oh man, can I not wait for this conversation. Becky, Jules, go for it. Thanks for inviting me here. I'm I'm truly so humbled to be sharing this screen with you and I guess this podcast because this is audio. This is so no one will see the screen. So I'm truly humbled to be sharing this space with you. Julian, 
I want to thank you for sharing so honestly. And I don't know if you can, well, I'm showing you now. I took many notes um, about what you said. And as a Jew of color, so much of what you said was actually very comforting to me because I feel as though I, I'm always saying those things. And whenever I don't have to, it's like a relief. And you say it with so much power. And I also want to ask you where that power comes from, because maybe it just lives like deeply inside of you that I believe in a heartbeat. And I know that sometimes I personally get a little worn down by having these conversations all the time. And I'm wondering, like, do you ever get tired of just having these conversations? I, like you and most of the rest of us, am tired all the time of having these conversations. But there are a couple things that I think make it much easier for me than most of the rest of us as Jews of color, my husband included, because he's he's Black American with two Black American parents. His mom, he can trace back 14 generations of African descendant Jews. His dad converted, but he has a very different approach to all of this than I do. And was because he got a lot more, I think, like disbelief growing up, in part because he grew up Orthodox. And I think it's very different I, in my experience in Orthodox communities. Like like I said before, Nifty was one of the few places that I didn't have to choose. So the fact that the community that I grew up in didn't ask a lot of stupid questions, at least not of me, really helped. The fact that when I moved back to New City and started going to a very different synagogue than I'd grown up going to, I still didn't entirely have to deal with it because somebody, my birthday buddy, his mom was a substitute teacher in my school district. And she, so she had been myself a lot and she, you know, was a member of the Chabad there. And so people realized that she knew me and were smart enough to ask her the stupid questions so that they didn't offend me, which by the way, is another tip and trick. If you realize that somebody already knows the person, ask them the stupid questions, save the person um, from the ajada and the embarrassment and like the awkward moment. So like, so like I've been very protected in that way, I think in my home settings. And again, my mom raised me with this entitlement to it, but, and I'm a Leo, that also has a lot to do with it, honestly. But I also think that for me, the fact that my Jewish story, like my, my, his, my heritage Jewish story is so not only stereotypical, but literally textbook makes it much easier because people want to play the authenticity game with me and I usually beat them, um, which is not something that most Jews of color can do. Even if they can beat them in authenticity, it's not authenticity in the way that people recognize. So like personally, my great uncle's picture is on the wall in the permanent exhibit of the St. Louis in the DC Holocaust Museum because he and my great grandmother were on it um, and managed to get off, thank God. My grandfather, uh, this is, you know, my grandfather's brother and his mom. My grandfather himself was kicked out of his gymnasium for being Jewish, ended up coming over here a few years later, sponsored, ha spoke no English, you know, worked his, didn't finish high school, all of that worked his way up. My grandmother was a part of, her family had moved from Germany to the UK before the war and were living in London and she was a part of kinder transport wow. um, and grew up going to school in a convent outside of London so that she wouldn't be killed for being a Jewish kid. Like, these are literally textbook stories. And then I found out 
about eight years ago that actually I'm also a direct descendant of Tosfot Yom Tov, who was the head rabbi in Austria a couple of centuries ago. So like I literally have a heritage that is pretty strongly Ashkenazi and like recognizable. And therefore, if you want to try to play that authenticity Olympics with me, you will lose. And I think it's a stupid game anyway. But if you're going to come up to me and try to like make me less authentic than you, you can't. And so I realized that that is a privilege that I have as a Jew of color and gives me a responsibility to speak up and also to talk about the fact that like not everybody has that, but that doesn't make you any less authentic. And because I am now sort of authority and proven authority in that, that carries weight when I say it. So I take that responsibility really seriously and I find it empowering to use it on behalf of people who shouldn't have to go through any of that. Wow. Uh, that is definitely a rich family history that you have offered. And as someone who has been a part of those authenticity games, but does not have that story, um, it is, it's interesting to, to kind of uh, juxtapose those experiences, I think. I wish we didn't have to play the authenticity game all the time. And Sometimes I honestly feel like it brings out the worst in me because I will literally bring out like every Jewish thing I could find, um, including like matzo ball soup recipes that that I believe originated in Korea when um, <laughs> when I'm not sure if they actually did. But my mom does make the best. Um, <laughs> That's really cool, though. I want to hear that. <laughs> um, you have to try my mom's matzo ball soup. It's just the best. Matzo ball soup without kimchi is just not it's. It's not a complete meal. Okay, I um, need to try this. Seriously, it's going to have to happen <laughs> when we're both back in New York. I agree. I totally agree. I mean, I have kind of a million questions for you. So um, one of the questions is, it's so clear to me that there are so many other identities as well, human identities that influence who you are and the incredibly strong voice that you bring to the world. I personally feel as though I'm literally getting koach by listening to you right now. And so I wonder if you can share some of the other identities that influence who you are, um, aside from being Jewish. I, I believe in intersectionality, so I know that you can't really bifurcate or like compartmentalize identities. Um, but what other aspects about you or what other sides of you influence the, the Jewish soul that, that you are and that you live and breathe? I love every part about how you worded that question. Um, it, it made me be able to actually just give an answer which I feel like is one of the things as Jews of color that we never get to do unless we're in a space with other Jews of color. Mm -hmm. uh, because so many of our social identities are usually the excuse for why we are whatever we're doing. And then when you're in a room with other people who like also have the same Venn a similar Venn diagram, I should say, mm -hmm. of social identities, it's all of a sudden like, oh crap, I have to actually be a person now. I can't be the Jew or you know, the black woman or the biracial woman or mm -hmm. the woman or, you know, like I have to actually be who I am, not all of my social identities. So that intersectionality, I think, is actually a big part of why I am who and how I am. But like the pieces of them, too, trying to parse them out, you know, you can't have one without the other. But like being the kind of black American that I am, I think, has a really big impact on me and having to struggle with validating that identity 
inside and outside of the Black community has really made an impact because, like I mentioned earlier, Nifty was the only place I didn't have to choose. I spent a lot of time in Spring Valley in high school also. And like Amanda said, that was a lot less white of an area. There's a lot of Black, and that Black is both African-American and more more prevalently Afro-Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I didn't really fully understand my own Black identity at that age. I'm still not entirely sure that I do. I'm still not entirely mm-hmm. sure anybody does at some point. But being able to, like, have that surrounding really helped. But as I get older, you know, I'm, I'm staying with my cousin in San Diego right now from my dad's side. And as I was going to bed the other night, I overheard her and my husband having this conversation about like, you know, authentic blackness. Like my husband not only grew up as, you know, an Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn, but loves hockey and, you know, has, has these, and it like is, is well educated and his, Degree is in English, so he speaks well, so-called, and always has, and, like, has always had a very big interest in the English language. And, like, my cousin is also well-educated, and she grew up with, you know, in my grandma's house also. So, like, this is, like, the blackest of the blackness of my cousins, I guess, but was never what you necessarily consider stereotypical in most ways. And that's a good thing and a thing with no value, I guess, attached to it. So it made it very confusing, though, when people would say to me, like, you're not really Black or you're not Black enough. Uh, And when my daughter would say for a long time, no, Ima, you're not really Black, you're white. And I would have to sit down and be like, no, that's like, it it doesn't have these definitions that you're calling it. My dad is Black, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. That's it. End of story. No matter how I act, this is something I own as an identity. And I think that because that was something that was so strongly taught to me as a kid. That's how I feel about all of my identities, I guess, is like, if it is legitimately mine, I own it. I don't care what mm-hmm. you think. It's it's not up to you. It's also something that I think has hindered me in a lot of ways, honestly, though, because with identities that I'm exploring, that I don't know for sure that like I have a, a very undeniable connection to, I struggle with that. Like, for example, this the struggle that I sort of have with orthodoxy where, like, I'm orthoprax, but I don't believe it within necessarily the exact tenets. And a lot of the things that I do might be further right than some people who consider themselves very firmly modern orthodox grew up that way will say, no, you are modern orthodox, and I think you should own that. Mm-hmm. And I want you to change modern orthodoxy and orthodoxy from within. And I'm like, I can't, because how do I come into something and then say, I'm going to change it because I don't like it? So... I feel like parsing the identity out is is hard and something that takes practice, but it's something I've been glad mm-hmm. to be able to do and feel strongly about. Thank you. I don't know, maybe Amanda knows this because we just shared a class together, but I truly believe that like everyone has a prophetic voice and it's my mission in the world to just like let people speak. And man, your prophetic voice is like fire and a blanket at the same time. I know it's really hard for me to explain. Um, It's both so comforting and just like, bam. I'm so glad this is recorded because I just want to like hang that as a plaque above myself and look at it every time (laughs) that I'm insecure about anything ever, which is most of the time. So thank you. Okay. So I actually, yeah. So one, thank you for, I just, I don't even know what to say. Those words were eclipse, these words. Um, The The last question I actually have for you 
was you had mentioned um, a phrase that I hadn't heard or thought about, to be honest, in such a long time, which made me sad. You said earlier, Ben Adam Le Havero. And I want, I, I would love to hear you parse that, parse that out for what that means for you right now. And maybe it's just me, like I haven't thought about that in a while, but it just, it's something that I think I might use as a mantra now because I have not thought about it. And I think it's incredibly important right now, but I would love to know like, what does that bring up responsibility for you? Does that bring up connection for you? And has that evolved for you over the years? So I'm going to start with just a big moment of vulnerability and honesty and I hope that this is heard in the place that is coming from but that was really it's really emotional for me to hear that a you know a fourth year rabbinic student at HUC like doesn't think that much about being a Don because in in like being more immersed I guess in the world of orthodoxy now as an adult that is often something that people attribute as far as like how strongly it's a part of who I am and what I bring to my Judaism to having a reform upbringing. Mm. A lot of people will say that like, that's the thing that the reform movement does, right? Like that, that orthodoxy is more concerned about between man and God and that reform movement is more concerned about between man and man Mm. or human and human or, you know, however you want to put it. I'm saying how orthodoxy often says it, so it's man and man often. So it's 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 sad. like it makes me really sad and a little heartbroken to hear that that's not something that's being like constantly discussed. Um, and I'm sure it's not just at HUC. I'm sure that it's like overall and the world is in shambles right now. So I guess it shouldn't be that surprising. But now I totally actually forgot the actual question because it, it, it like it hit me that hard. Um, but you, okay, so you're saying like, can I parse out what that means to me more? Well, yeah, but also we could pivot. Do you want to just talk about that? Both, both end. I think to me, it, it means though that like, we're here to do a lot of things as humans. And will we ever know like a singular purpose? No, I don't think so. And is there a singular purpose? Also, no, I don't think so. But I think that we're supposed to leave the world a better place and that there are so many ways that we can do that. But if if one of those ways, if one of those central ways is not in how we interact with other people, then we're doing it wrong. And I think that very strongly because the influence that people have on each other is more than just a surface level like moment. You know, a random smile that you give a stranger can set off an amazing chain of events. Also, a random dirty look that you give a stranger can set off a random chain of events. And it could also not. Like, it, we don't know, but it can mean so much to somebody who, because of whatever other experience they're having. And I feel like it's our responsibility to do what we can to make sure that our interactions with other people, when we have the emotional space to do so especially, help them bring more light into the world, as well as being our moment of bringing more light into the world. And like, if we're not doing that as Jews, then how are we supposed to be bringing light onto the nations? The reason you see me wildly gesticulating is because 
I am constantly telling people about my wish, which is called Operation Smile, where everyone is just forced to smile at a new person in a synagogue. Every time they see a new person, they don't recognize or maybe recognize, but just smile. I also believe that a smile can just change the world. And sorry, I wrote in the chat, oh my gosh, I'm losing it. That is a life philosophy I have. You are telepathic, but I didn't send it. So... <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we can talk about that. I think that that's actually Benadam Le Havero. It's interesting. I would say that personally, I hold that as like a theology that I don't always think is necessarily embraced by some of the Jewish spaces that I have to operate in and that I choose to operate in. And um, it actually makes me very sad because I, I mean, I, I, now I'm like, oh, of course, that's a, a Jewish value. And at the same time, it's not necessarily one that I really feel is present um, in the spaces that I operate in. So that's fascinating and something for me to also explore and think about. I totally feel what you were saying when you said like you do the learning earlier be because you're forced to in a way, like the world kind of dictates different identities upon you and you have to navigate how you're going to survive in that world and identify yourself. And for me, it was always like I wasn't Jewish enough and I wasn't Korean enough and um, the Koreans wouldn't have me and like then the Jews wouldn't have me. And then like when the Koreans would have me, it would only be contingent upon like going to a lot of church gatherings, which I actually love. Um, but that's a very full weekend that I just can't keep up Saturday and Sunday. And I think that for me, a lot of like what that particular phrase has come to be has been uh, influenced really by my time uh, studying with a lot of white Jews and really trying to learn together because I agree. I think that we all have learning to do. We all put our feet in our mouths and we all have to backtrack and just kind of wanting to be seen a little more in a space that I'm, I've been in for a while. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And and how how much of like it seems like it should be so black and white, I think, when you have these conversations with groups where that overlap doesn't happen. So it it often feels like you have to either be super angry with these people and hate them, or you have to just love them and let it go. And it's like, well, just like with any family. That's not how it works. Like, I am yours and you are mine. And I still kind of want to punch you in the face a little bit right now. Uh, maybe even more because I am yours and you are mine. And it just, like, we, we need people to step up and we, we need people to notice, even if they didn't, if it didn't occur to them before, um, when we're making that face, that face where like, we're clearly exhausted and we're going to speak up because we're also like, we have to say something. You know what? Some of those moments, you don't want to talk over the person of color who's going to say something, and maybe that's the fear. But some of those moments, you can start with, do you mind if I'm the one who says something? And like, it's also sort of exhausting to give and withhold that permission. But sometimes it's less exhausting to do that than it is to actually have to be the only one in the room who's saying it. So it, I love that you just said that, because I think it's a really important thing for people to hear. <laughs> Well, Gabe, for this week's episode, for last week's episode, let's face it, it's been a mixed bag. We've had some incredible insights of conversations between people, but also we've been 
I don't know, like ripped apart by plagues in Egypt. Any shot, pun intended, that you created a wonderful drink to match the complex backstory of Parshat Bo? You know, a- after last week's Midrashic Mixology cocktail of the bloody, dark, and stormy, which honored at least three of the plagues, I I really tried to come up with something that was really up to the task, and I'm not sure I quite made it, but in honor of the locust, a plague that nobody likes, we decided to bring you its cousin, the grasshopper, an oft-maligned cocktail that is weird and thick and green, but also can be yummy. So you're going to combine one ounce of creme de menthe, one ounce of creme de cacao, and two ounces of half and half in a cocktail shaker and shake it with ice. You're going to prepare a glass with a chocolate swirl just to remember the darkness and pour in your green drink. You're going to top that with shaved dark chocolate and enjoy. The non-alcoholic version is a little more complicated but still good. To replace the creme de cacao, mix equal parts hot water and white hot chocolate mix and let it cool. Mix together one ounce of the white hot chocolate with three ounces of half and half and half a teaspoon each of peppermint extract and almond extract. Add in green food coloring to your taste. Again, serve in a chocolate swirled glass with shaved dark chocolate. Maybe it will soften your heart. Lechayim. I want to figure out how to make a kosher Le Pesach version of this and make it also something that can be replacing at least one of the cups of wine, because that sounds awesome. Um, to be fair, last week's was kosher for Passover. That was that was another thing that I was all proud of, was that the bloody, dark, and stormy was kosher <laughs> for Passover. That's Thank awesome. You. That drink looks amazing, but I am just a little jealous because I would need a dairy-free version. And so I don't want to give you too much homework. Um, But if you did want to make a dairy-free version, that would be lovely. Well, guess I got to get on that. (laughs) So that's Midrashic Mixology. Idan, your sting goes here. So while I'm truly sad to say it, we've reached that part of the episode where it's thank yous and closing cues. And let's face it, everybody's in a rush these days, even though... Half the time, we're trying to figure out if we're rushing from the bedroom to the living room to the kitchen. But still, we're moving from place to place, from thing to thing. And so, Julianne, Becky, Idan, Gabe, if you are rushing out to save your life, what is the one thing that you would bring with you? And let's be real, we're making the assumption that all pets and people are safe and coming with you and taken care of. Julianne, we'll start with you. So let's be honest, um, my car is basically my bug out bag. So as long as I can bring my car, I'm happy because everything else I need is in it. But if if that's cheating, then I will just say my water filtration system. Also would make that 40 years feel like 40 minutes, am I right? A lot, a lot more, yeah. Becky, what would you bring with you? Okay, so if I were to grab anything, the first thing that comes to mind is duct tape because... I don't know. It's it's very practical. Um, it sticks to itself. So you could take it and put it on something and then put more duct tape on it and then it'll just be ready for you to use. And it can fix almost everything. And if we're going to survive, I'm pretty sure we need duct tape no matter what the scenario is. Love it. Practical. Makes sense. Done. 
I know this isn't really a funny answer, but um, I would say that I'd have to grab my uh, my external hard drive where I have all the work I've been doing for, you know, since the whole pandemic started. And I, I would be very, very upset if suddenly it was all gone. In addition, I will say as like a backup answer, my first thought was actually my uh, my Nintendo Switch in case in case I needed to kill some time before I uh, actually you know had more things again. Gabriel, yeah, my my gut reaction is my phone. I just like I I would feel very naked without it. But yeah, in terms of that like passing the time thing, I don't know, maybe a good book or a bottle of you know something nice. Fair, I love it. Uh, maybe not such a conversation starter, I'll admit, but, uh, for those that know me and know me very well, I would never, ever, ever run for my life without my teddy bear Homer with his bow tie. Uh, you know, and, and there are those on this call who have known Homer for a very, very long time. Um, and, and so that's real. I mean, like, bringing a teddy bear is fine. You know, it may not be a phone or an external hard drive. You know, I don't know how you're going to use your external hard drive without a computer, but no judgments. No judgments, right? That's the point. Hey, I can get a new computer, but I can't replace all the work files I did. That's fair. All that's right. True. That, 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 that's what I'm saying. All right. We'll, we'll own it. Look, you know, Edan, I, I honestly, I think that's a conversation for another time. And for Julianne, and honestly, even for you, Becky, if you're interested, if people want to continue the conversation, how do they find and follow you? Okay, so I can be reached um, at julianne at hyphenatednation.com. I suck at answering emails, but I eventually do. Um, I think Amanda can very much attest to that, especially after all of this. I will spell it for you because my parents decided my identity as an interracial and interreligious kid was not going to be complicated enough. I needed to make my name fun too. So G-U-L-I-E-N-N-E at hyphenatednation.com. And please do reach out. Okay, social media. So you can find me on Instagram, I think on... Let's see. What is my Instagram? J Becky. And by how long it just took me, you can tell I am not really very active on Instagram, but I do use Messenger. So I'd love to be in touch with you. Julian and, and Becky, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? People always give better answers after I go first. And yet I keep going first anyway. It's really bad. Um, don't do that, guys. Let people talk first. That's that's my end. Yes, my last thought is that Oreos here in Spain have half the amount of sugar as Oreos in the United States. So just be sure that when you are traveling abroad and you want to eat Oreos that you make up for that sugar deficit by having more Oreos um, because they have different amounts of sugar in different countries. Beautiful and practical. Thank you so much, Becky, for being on the show today. Thank you, Julianne. What a pleasure it was to bring a little piece of home onto the air. Thank you, Gabe, because you deal with me and we're, you know, somehow making this work. And man, 12 episodes. Can you believe it? Very exciting. And as always, our, our favorite thank you to our favorite producer ever, Edon Waldman. And with that, that's our show.
You know, Gabe, you brought up something earlier that tied in with what Julianne and what Becky were saying of this idea that even as far away as, as two partiota go back in Shemot, people look at Jews differently. They look at people as less than, right, swarms coming into Egypt and Pharaoh being afraid of what it would look like to have this people tower over. And I think that fear and, and speaking truth to power even comes into our own Judaism today. I think there are people in Jewish communities and in, in all denominations and all sects that look at people that don't look like them and are afraid. I think that's true, but I think it's often less about fear and more about a lack of experience. I think that we get stuck in these really myopic views of the world where, as Julianne said, sometimes our experiences lead us to believe that there's only one correct way of doing things, only one correct way somebody is supposed to look, or only one way to be Jewish. And as we've learned through several episodes of this podcast, closing out episode 12 now, we know that that's not true. Right. And in the same way that Moses was different than Aaron, was different than Miriam, was different than Sipora. It takes everybody to make up this Israelite Jewish community, right? It takes everyone's stories to bring this book to life. And I think that Becky and, and Julianne both say, look, we're tired. We're telling the same stories over and over. But the importance of it is that it brings these things to life. It lets people feel it, hear it, and then live it. Absolutely. I also think that Becky brought up a really important point, which is many of us are sitting through these incredibly beautiful diversity trainings and are learning and are questioning and are asking, but don't bring those practices into our everyday actions. We hear something, it may go in one ear and out the other. We don't step forward. We don't necessarily say, hey, like, don't forget about X. And so one of the things that I'm hoping we're doing with this podcast is reminding people that it's on us to make sure that everybody's story is included, whether it's Egyptian, Israelite, Midianite, or, as Julian said beautifully before, a confusing mix of identities. Definitely. And as I said, that really is one of our biggest goals on this podcast, is to make sure that in any given episode, somebody can tune in and say, you know what, that person sounds like me. I really see myself reflected in this podcast because, as we both know, the Jewish community holds a lot of different identities within it, and it holds a lot of different levels of experience and different interests, and we're really proud to be able to bring those voices together, bring them into conversation with each other, and ultimately bring them to our listeners. Wonderful. And if you're listening, we would love to hear from you. You can always be in touch with us at drinkingandroshing at gmail.com. Feel free to subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to give us a rating. We'd love for five stars, but you know, you do you. And find us on Facebook at drinkingandroshing or find us at Instagram at drinkingandroshing. That's where we love to engage with our audience and our community. With that, we hope that you have a wonderful week. And as always, l'chaim. L'chaim. Welcome to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist, the podcast where Gabe will make all your favorite dairy-free drinks.